listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome, everyone. It's a uh, glorious spring day here in Denver after getting a flash snowstorm day before yesterday. It's the final day of Q1, and it's uplifting to think about the arrival of the spring, the celebration of Passover and Easter, the reopening and getting to the other side of the pandemic. So now on to Edelman and to my great guest today, Russell. Edelman is a global communications firm that partners with businesses and organizations to evolve, promote, and protect their brands and reputations. Over 6,000 people in more than 60 locations around the globe deliver communication strategy that allow their clients to lead and act with certainty. Russell Dubner is the CEO of Edelman's U.S. Operations, a role he has held since 2014. Previously, Russell was president of Edelman New York. Russell went to Franklin and Marshall College, uh, where he played soccer, also wrestled and also played tennis, uh, has an MBA from Columbia Business School. Russell started Edelman in 1992 and is in, in his 30th year with the company. He sits on the boards of Coro New York Leadership Center, Gen Next Foundation, and the Center for an Urban Future. So, Russell, you and I actually have a number of similarities. We both went to small liberal arts colleges to play D3 athletics and then went on to Ivy League business schools. We are both fathers of three boys. You are the owner of two golden doodles. Uh, We have one and are about to get our second. We both lived in London about the same time in the early 2000s, even though we didn't know one another back then. And you now run the U.S. operations in one of the largest global communications firms. Take us back for a moment to graduating from Franklin and Marshall and why you joined Edelman, which at the time was nothing close to the global powerhouse it is today. Well, first, Willie, thanks again for having me on today. Yeah, you know, when I, it's a great question. Back then, Edelman was not the leader it is today, but the leaders of Edelman were still the Edelman family, and they are an ambitious bunch. And Dan Edelman and then Richard, Uh, was on a mission, knew that communications had a large role to play at the head table. You know, that ambition is contagious. Was there anything you talked about, Dan and and Richard, was there anything in your background from either a leadership or an education standpoint that you think made you stand out to them back in the 1990s that they said, hey, Russell's got legs? Sometimes a place fits you well where that kind of drive, ambition, hustle appealed deeply to me because it fit my work ethos, how I look at the world. And I think early days, some of my first client engagements, we did a bunch of work for the government of Mexico around the time of NAFTA. And here we had this premium assignment working with the White House Task Force on NAFTA after just graduating from college. And be able to coalesce a team that were a set of former journalists, a set of people who were really sort of publicists and uh, looking at a campaign and bringing that together and end up being sort of a campaign quarterback 
I think showed them that not only did I have the hustle, that I could coalesce a team. So I think that moment, and then after our success there, you know, I naturally thought, well, how do we build a playbook? How can this be something that we could take to other clients, which then helped us grow in international public affairs, doing inward investment work for Israel and some for Brazil and the like. So early on, some of the brands that you worked with were Church and Dwight, uh, Dannon and Energizer. I didn't know that Church and Dwight owned Arm & Hammer, Pepsodent and Trojan brands. Talk to me for a second about how you work with a company that is trying to sell baking soda, toothpaste and condoms with regard to a unified branding strategy. Sure. Well, I mean, I think first you start with the fact that each of those products has a particular audience that they want to energize. But with something like, say, the Arm & Hammer, it's also sort of a master brand because the baking soda can get applied to a whole bunch of different uh, applications. And so what we'll do is look at what is the need of those potential consumers and then overall how are you potentially positioning the parent company, which is more the case with, you know, say, Unilever, where that purpose-driven brand. But interestingly, this summer, you know, uh, we still do a lot of work for Church & Dwight. And looking at their Arm & Hammer brand, we created almost a summer camp, a virtual summer camp for young moms and their children, with the enemy being moms not getting time during COVID. And so it's an instance where you're proving the utility of the brand by giving kids activities of all the ways you can use Arm & Hammer with, you know, showing them that there's a creativity and that we know the, the problems that they face. So those are the kinds of programs. And, you, get, you know, we, we were able to garner 5 million views of the content because it wasn't selling. It was really engaging people and helping them in a fun way, creative way, solve a problem. Talk about the difference of trying to work with a company to promote a specific product, like what you just talked about with Arm & Hammer, versus someone like BCG or PwC, two of your of the clients that you worked with, where you really, you're talking about, first of all, services, not an actual product. And second of all, in the case of BCG specifically, you can't even talk about what they've done for whom. So how do you go about selling that type of a service versus we all kind of get, okay, let's figure out who the target audience is on Arm & Hammer and go promote that product? Yeah, it's, it's a very different problem set. You know, one takes the, 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 the example of the Arm & Hammer, takes a certain kind of creativity to stay relevant with an audience. And for a BCG or a PwC, it takes a different kind of creativity. So when we started work with BCG, uh, maybe it was 10 years ago, and admittedly today we do work for McKinsey, but Rich Lesser was the main client who's today the global CEO. And his ambition was to make BCG seen as an institution, not just a strategy shop. And so part of uh, the challenge there is, you know, how do you show up? Where do you show up? And so for them, somebody was helping them forge partnerships like we did with, uh, with TED. So there's a, there's a BCG at TED that's now lasted 10 years where BCG shows up with their TED Talks and it forced them to change how they delivered their storytelling and created a mechanism for them to do that. Another piece is making sure that you're adjacent to the people uh, who have the most influence to bring forward your best ideas. And, you know, they were a natural medicine brand back then and getting them in the right mix and the right uh, showing up at the Milkins of the world and the like. For someone like PwC, it's different. 
PwC is very much about leading with their action too. So Tim Ryan, who's our client who heads the U.S., is a very bold leader. And with Tim, he's very willing to step out and lead, for instance, on diversity and inclusion and created an organization and kind of gifted that outside of PwC around CEO action and has been really bold also about upskilling, seeing the challenges that are coming down the pike and investing big dollars in the firm is doing that globally. And so a lot of building the brand is around their action in addition to their thinking about what's changing in the economy and how CFOs are grappling with uh, the next stage post-COVID. If we rolled the clock back, Russell, to, I don't know, 2000 and thought about PwC and BCG, for example, and how much of their media spend was in traditional media. I remember distinctly walking through Heathrow Airport year after year when we were living over there and seeing all the PwC signs on the wall. And and so there's that typical kind of billboard spend that they would do in an airport. But clearly online media has you know, basically consume the media world. If you think back to the spend of someone like PwC in 2000, and maybe PwC isn't the right example, but someone like that in the professional services space, how much has their media spend from traditional media back in 2000 to now online media shifted over the last two decades? I think professional services and like companies are having to look at their spend and say, okay, I have this pot of money. What really matters to my customer and their influencers now? Where, where are they going to find that relevance and connection? And so what you've seen is that, yes, there still are the golf sponsorships and alike, but the places where they get more resonance could be around really useful thought leadership. And so that there's a digital targeting and engagement strategy around publishing. And so each of them have become their own publishing and media company. So they've employed some top former journalists who are part of their team. And so dollars have shifted from traditional marketing to marketing that is of substantive value. And that some of that shift you'll see in terms of digital and digital spend. Some of it's on the substance itself. And uh, some of that is also around convening. Who do you bring together to talk through and to solve? So I think the shift has been pretty dramatic. And I know for instance, some of those uh, firms are looking today at, again, what are the returns? How are we getting our customers engaged? And are they in areas of common interest? So, uh, yeah, it's a very different formula in, in part because the customer is looking for more substantive engagement. I listened to Richard Edelman on a webcast that you all did right after the election talking about that the media, the lack of trust in the media today is at an all-time high as far as distrust in media. And at the same time, media companies are making money hand over fist right now. And then I heard you just say that a lot of these larger firms are actually on their on their online media, bringing a lot of capabilities in-house. And, and so as you think about the media landscape over the next decade, is it that people start to create really their own PR and internal capabilities, or do they continue to rely on third parties as both the channel as well as the creator of content? Yeah, I mean, look, the way I like to think about this is that the media ecosystem is often, you know, parts of it are dying, and then there is a vibrant new ecosystem that's being born. And you really need to track where that is and where your uh, employees, where your consumers, where your customers are finding that trusted information. 
And so what's been shifting here is that you see both traditional media, you know, parts of it doing well, other parts are really sucking wind. And you've seen this huge exodus of, of, uh, of journalists from a lot of the top media, and it's taking dollars from billionaires and alike to prop up some of those media properties, right? On the flip side, you see the greatest trust is in company media. And so, in fact, our research has shown that company as media is more credible and trusted than the media itself. And so, yes, I think company as, as their own media property, as producer, is really important. But so is also the fact that you have influencers today, which aren't just the celebrities that are paid. We, you, we engage influencers in a technology marketing context, in a uh, B2B engagement, understanding those sources of influence through social largely is also a huge part of the game. You almost have to think of this as, as you know, what's happening in media is sort of a hollowing out of what was the middle. So you have the big players who are doing well, and then you have sort of the sub-stack newsletter types that are also very focused in value. And what a company needs to do is figure out how it peels in both and how do you fill some of those gaps. How does Edelman kind of manage and understand the whole new media, online media space. For instance, my kids on Snapchat or on watching YouTube people, they're these YouTube stars. They're these Snapchat personalities who, you know, I get some, you know, news feed that says that just yesterday or the day before some young woman tragically died, who was some Snapchat star. I didn't, had no idea who she was. How do you all manage and monitor that to build up the knowledge base at Edelman to be able to come to companies like Walker and Dunlop and put forth, you know, who you really need to try and promote this service or this brand is this person. Yeah. So it's part science and part of it is, is an art. On the science side, we've been looking at what are the, you know, most trusted, broadest sources of information from traditional media. And we've been using and investing in there's technology and changes that have happened in how what we call comms tech, the communications technology, just like that's changed in ad tech. It lets you have a much better sense of which outlet, which individual has the most uh, strongest voice, the most veracity around a particular topic set. The same kinds of technologies can be applied to influencer. And then you really need to know who that person is. So we have a whole team that what they do is really study what's changing, study who that right matches for the brand, and then does some of this is just really being done at a hand-to-hand level and looking at who those creators might be. You know, there's that kind of work we do for, you know, a brand like Xbox. People are so enthusiastic about Xbox. You don't need to pay anybody to communicate about Xbox. I mean, just ask my kids and how excited they are. I want to get their hands on the, the next one coming out. Nonetheless, How do you still inspire the right creators? How do you make sure there are diverse voices that are coming through? And they're really smart about making sure they know who those diverse uh, voices might be and making sure that they get engaged in a way that inspires them to create. So some firms who went to like a, a social media marketing that focused on influencer, they would say, pay these people these dollars and they'll produce this content for you. And we take a much more hybrid approach because we think there's a lot of authentic enthusiasm that you can get through creativity. So that's the basic gist. 
So sticking on your comment about Xbox and and your boys and one of my boys in particular has the same, <laughs> I would call it a propensity, not an addiction. Although I think my wife would call it an addiction to the Xbox, but uh, you've done work with Activision. And one of the interesting things in the work as as I heard you speak about your work with Activision was to embed something in that is both experiential and authentic. And you, you talk a bunch about sort of the experiential world, both in retail as well as in using a video game, but that also has something that is authentic to it. Talk, talk about those two sort of qualifications that make communication and ad strategy so effective if you can get both the experiential and the authentic. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's, a, it's a great observation. I, I think in the case of the work we did for Activision when they're about to release a new sort of um, Call of Duty was was really about engaging the gaming community where they were, right? It's pretty hard to get the community to want to switch when they're so enthusiastic about what they're immersed in. And so we took that insight and we created the first Snapchat integration. And so we disguised it as a software upgrade, a download, and so that when some of the top gamers were going through, they could discover it. And once it was discovered, it gives them a chance to start decoding it. And then the enthusiasm around solving the problem of like, well, what is this gift that's coming in from Activision blew up. So by the time they did the launch, it already had tens of millions of people participating and understanding what might be coming and getting energized by it. So it was authentic to them, authentic to the community, you know, a social media platform they're already deeply engaged with. And so that's where you, you know, when you thread that needle, then you don't need to spend a lot of money. You just need to get the creative and the execution right to blow out that kind of enthusiasm. So that makes great sense in the kind of the video game world. Talk about the work you did with REI on the opt-out side campaign and why that was so effective. Look, I think that one too was one of these lightning in a bottle moments. And with the work with opt-out side, at at the time there was an Edelman alumni who was the head of comms and he called me and said, hey, we we think we might have something here. We could really use your help. And we've, we, we think we have a, a notion about how we want to define our enemy. And the enemy being really the, this notion of being the first indoor species that we in America in particular are spending too much time inside. And how can we get people to understand that REI isn't about just equipment and about clothing, but we're about helping people access the outdoors and how important that is. And so they came with this notion and what you have, we had to figure out with them is, okay, so what's the brand act? How do you get people to understand you really mean this? This isn't about marketing. This is about your mission. And so what we all landed on was this notion of closing down their stores on Black Friday. And to take that hidden profit on one of the most popular shopping days got people's attention, got the media's attention. And then once that started steamrolling, what they did is to gift this idea out, right? So to get, again, more people to be willing to participate. So got, you know, governors started raising their hand and saying, we're going to open our parks for free 
on Black Friday. Isn't that interesting? Other brands said, we're going to do something similar. Instead of holding tight, we opened up. And each of those things we just would naturally working pad team with the team at REI keep evolving as we change. And then there's been subsequent chapters. So when it's really mission driven, then an organization like REI will say, okay, so the next chapter is about access to the outdoors for women. Why aren't women featured in the same way in catalogs? And so they had to do some self-reflection and make changes around that. Now their, their focus is around black and brown Americans. And what are we doing to make sure that the outdoor is accessible to them? And so the brand and the perceptions of the brand and trust in the brand took a very, very big bump around this. And so, but ultimately is really true to who they are. So as I think about, about what you, to help promote REI and getting people outdoors, you could also have just done a really poor job of promoting Activision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would not have been well received by Activision. You also worked on uh, Tough Mudder, Russell, and uh, I'm sure many listeners don't even know what Tough Mudder is, but I find the Tough Mudder brand to be something of a, of a cult brand. Can you, can you explain that and how you all worked with such a, what I would view as sort of one of these almost overnight brands that took on a life of its own? Yeah, uh, we worked with um, Wiltine in, in sort of when they were going from having momentum to becoming something of greater scale. And so what they were looking for uh, from us is how do you build a story that can be self-sustained in each of those the markets where they're bringing you know, the, their experience and how do we look at this from a social strategy perspective to make sure that it's getting the right shares, the right visibility, the right loyalty. And what does it mean from an immediate perspective? So you can only do national media around the same story so many times. And so how do you find a different twist there, but also how do you bring it local? Because ultimately they needed to get the ticket sales in those markets. They needed to get the local teams that were being set up. But we still did some super interesting and fun things nationally. We you know, we got the morning shows. We would literally set up a tough mutter uh, obstacle course for them to run through, and kind of um, we would we started revealing the obstacles and uh, early and making that a reveal moment. And for a brand like them, once they got up and running and internalized what it would take, something that they took on themselves. Uh, but it was super fun to be a part of companies that are on that fast. Uh, rise and how do we help them scale their growth? So on that, a lot of our listeners, there are plenty of listeners today who have, work for big companies that have big global brands. And there are plenty of people who have, you know, much smaller, either footprints, they own a couple of commercial real estate assets somewhere, they might own a mortgage brokerage firm somewhere, or they might be, you know, in the private wealth management space and just have their own business that they're trying to promote. As you think about kind of strategies for building brand, what are the core tenants? If you sit down with a client who says, okay, I don't really have much of a brand today, but I've got to kind of start somewhere. As you think about someone like Tough Mudder, who kind of, you know, caught a little bit of, of lightning in a bottle because of what they were building, but it was a very, very small company when it first started with its first race and then built from there. What would you say to somebody listening today as it relates to how do you go about trying to establish a brand? Well, oftentimes there are a handful of core questions a leader or a company needs to be able to answer for itself, you know, what do you really want to be known for? 
who am I in that in this market and, and how am I set apart? And 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 how are you living that? How is that showing up? And that that requires creativity and it requires some some courage and in, in being bold behind that conviction. And oftentimes what we look at is also, you know, to to lead, is there is there some deficit in, in the marketing in the competitive field that you can fill? And sometimes for us, that deficit that we look for is around imagination and some of the deficit is around trust. And so for us, when that intersection happens, that's the most interesting where you might find that, you know, know, we're doing this problem is a much larger organization, but someone like Petco, who's a, a great client of ours, they saw this opportunity to fill a gap in trust related to the healthful pet foods and healthful and access to the health and wellness for pets and pet parents. And so sometimes seeing those kinds of gaps also give you the inspiration to go in to build your brand in a way that you can feel energized and uh, authentic. And how much on that, Russell, is, I mean, as you, as you use that Petco example, how much of the marketing or branding around that has to do with the products and services versus Petco as a company? Because I think one of the things that I've seen you talk about extensively is just that it is not only trust in the product or the service, it's also trust in the company. And we're going to get to the Edelman Trust barometer uh, in a moment. But as you think about that, could Petco go and address that market opportunity, but not sort of wear that on its sleeve every day? They, uh, so the the leadership team there, uh, both uh, the on the CEO and Tark, who heads marketing, and Dave Halsey, who heads the comms, they, they think about this in a very integrated way. They think about uh, consumer engagement, the corporate brand, and they also think about their marketing and understand that the core, the belief that they have deeply for both their employees and for their consumers really does need to show up regularly in the marketplace and embodied by the CEO, though also through their actions. So for instance, you know, when recently they were communicating about their recommitment to pet health, part of what we did was uh, take actually all the shock collars out of all the Petco stores. Say there's, there's a different way you have to realize that the emotional health of your pets is real. Dogs and I believe cats, I don't know, but feel to the same degree that humans do. So there are ways that you can be training. So what's the right way to do this? And so sometimes it's the removal of things. It's kind of like the work we did for CVS on the uh, quitting smoking. The removal of things to redirect to the positive is also part of what helps a brand like theirs stand out and know that the two pieces are deeply and intricately linked and that they have to stand for that. Otherwise, for your grooming and for uh, veterinary services, you might not go uh, go there. And that also holds true of during COVID, how you show up for your employees. What do you do for them? How are you present for them? Because they have to feel that and know that you are behind your brand 100%. 
talking about the shot collars and the removal of the shot collars. I got woken up at 1230 last night by our dog, by our puppy, and he was barking. So I thought he needed to go outside to relieve himself. So I let him outside and he would not come back inside. And at about 1245 at night, running around outside, trying to grab him and bring him back inside, I was sitting there saying, I need to get a shot collar, but <laughs> fortunately that thought passed quickly by about one o'clock in the morning when I finally got him back inside. A really we're good talking, biscuit. Yeah, I tried. Believe me, I, I pulled out some good filet, some tenderloin to try and lure him back inside. And he's smart enough not to take that. Take that. So, Russell, when you talk about building a brand locally, one of the things you've also, and something that Edelman does a ton of, is you also work on crisis management with uh, companies. And as you have said, you can build a brand locally, but when you have crisis management, it's a global issue immediately. Um, Talk for a moment about the work that you all do these days with crisis management. And I want to dive into a little bit more of specifically where people are asking for the most help, but, but address that for a moment as it really, like, as you think about Edelman's work on both communication strategies and branding, uh, as well as crisis management, what do you all disclose? What percentage of your work is on sort of the crisis management side versus on the general communications and branding side? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, I think the point that about uh, a crisis being global is it has the potential to be global. It can be a local issue that can become global now because of the nature of media. And uh, oftentimes early stage in what could be a crisis, like, is this an incident? Is this actually an issue we could intercept? Or is this something that is as large as a material breach of trust? And there are different dynamics that come into play if it's, um, you know, in some ways, um, a breach of a company's values and what they say they stand for. And you, you need to really get a, a artful sense of what's happening. But there's also, again, a science around this. And you can see by ring fencing and understanding from a social media geolocated, how fast is this moving? What kind of participation and likes and, and, and uh, from a media perspective, what the trajectory might look like and using some predictive techniques to understand that. So I just think it's important, like there are gates that you go through as you're deciding what this is. And then there are decision sets afterwards in the decision tree of, well, what are you going to do about that? So for us, crisis is is a big business in part because protecting uh, a company's brand and making sure that you retain the trust within your organization is so very, very important. And the, the breakdown of that for us is sometimes it's in, it could be related to an audience like the financial community. If it's material to them, then it becomes, it raises it up to a different kind of problem set. And for others, it might be specific to a consumer set alike. But overall, our, the corporate affairs work that we do overall for an enterprise is about half our business. And the work we do promoting brands is the other half. So we're, we're very much uh, uh, ambidextrous. And, and on that, as you think about those companies that have either in place a crisis management kind of plan, because they've been working with you for a long period of time, they've sat down and talked to you about, well, if this happened or this happened, and yeah. the ability to respond to that versus someone calling you up, we get done with this, 
webcast and heaven forbid I got to call you this afternoon and say Russell Walker and Dunlop was, you know, had a had a breach of our technology and we've got to figure out damage control on that. And we haven't worked with you on that specifically. How much more effective uh, are you all and are the companies in dealing with those crises if they have been working with you on the issues previously versus just calling you up cold and saying we got to get at it? Oftentimes there are there are issues that if you planned ahead, you can intercept them and lead on something as opposed to having it bite you in the ass, right? And so if you if you if you do enough of that scenario planning, if you imagine the potential downsides of say a technology, right? There's you know, there's there's work that a client of ours done where they saw the issue of deep fakes coming. And so what can they do to make sure that there are actions in place and that they're making sure that their technology is going to be used in ways that aren't manipulative to society. And so I think, again, if you're waiting around and that comes and bites you, you're going to find yourself on your heels. You're what could be a moment in time where you have ethics and you've made your decisions in a coherent way. Instead, you're, you're on your back foot. And as soon as you're in that defensive posture, it becomes very difficult to reestablish unless you're making actual real changes or you're able to refute it effectively. So to me, the best value is to be able to see these things in advance and turn what could be a crisis into either an, an issue you manage or a leadership position. You know, when it's something like a cyber breach, I don't know, you know, simulation builds muscle memory. So we do you know, the simulations and make sure that the management teams and others know how they're going to respond and what the escalation points are. Nonetheless, when it hits, it hits. And it's for all of these other broader stakeholder concerns that don't need to be a crisis where it's most valuable. You mentioned to me previously a client, which will obviously go unnamed, but that you all were working with where they thought that there was, if you will, just an HR issue. But as you all engaged and started to kind of peel the onion, found out that there was something that was sort of endemic in the business that was kind of rotten. And right now that company is working in the spinoff of that division. Can you can you shed a little light on yeah, that? Yeah, look, I think sometimes what we get called in to do is some of the things that the lawyers would prefer not to do, yeah. right? So we'll come in and we will go through and say, here's what is publicly available about you and your problem right now. Here is the likelihood, if this was discovered, what it could mean for you because of what you stand for or how your leadership will be evaluated based on these decisions. And so oftentimes these discussions will be at the board level and the board will want to understand if this happens, how will this likely play out? And then what a recommendation from us. We stop at the point of the recommendation of what action, but we make sure they understand. We put that mirror up to them in the most likely scenarios and show them where they, they aren't sort of living up to the promise that they share with their employees and with others. So the instance that you're talking about, you know, you know, a company can go or the end or the board or leadership can go to a point of saying, how are we going to, quote unquote, spin this, which is something that we don't we don't participate in. It could be defend this or do we need to take action? And sometimes that action becomes much more clear. We've had a CEO in a, in a discussion like this actually volunteer to step down, say, I get it now. 
this makes sense. I need to step down so that the organization can move forward. So after the election, um, I was watching the webcast that you and Richard Edelman did. And in that, as you all were giving people advice on sort of how to play the uncertainty after the election and, and how corporate leaders ought to be engaging with people. And basically, I think one of the things you said was, you know, for right now, you probably want to lay low until there's a little more visibility on what the outcome looks like. And then, but you're going to need to jump in at some point and, and show leadership and, and, and show support of the overall system and what have you. But one of the things that Richard Edelman said was that trust used to be top down, then it went horizontal and now it's local and focused on employers for a moment before we dive into the trust barometer and, and, and the survey that you all do, why do you think it is that institutional trust has gotten degraded in the United States, particularly as much as it has? And why has it gone from a top down to a vertical to a true local and, and literally the four walls we all work in every day? Yeah, well, you know, we've been studying this for over 20 years, the trends with trust. And, you know, we've we've seen the decline of trust in advertising early days, as we talked about before, we saw the the rise and fall of trust in social media. And then after the you know financial crisis of 2008, the fall and then rise again of trust in business. But what's happened as of late is people don't know both from an individual perspective and from an institution perspective, who to trust. They don't, they don't trust Unfortunately, uh, religious leaders, they don't, media and government. I think some statistic is about 57% of Americans believe that a, a, a leader, a journalist, a politician and the like are going to either mislead or provide misinformation. And so they're not sure where to turn to the one place that you really decide wholeheartedly yourself of where you should turn up is your place of work. Employers are the only ones we think about it in competence and ethics. And if you think about that, a two by two in the upper right, business is the only one that's in the upper right now. And so when you're looking around to whose voice do you hear, who can play this role of being a unifying, increasingly it's local with your employer. I'm sure it's also local as we're doing work um, around the vaccine front for a range of clients local spreads from there, but that, that is generally still the, the, the best source outside of the, the scientists. So I think it's almost by process of elimination of other institutions failing that business and your CEO, you know, your employees are likely 80 plus percent of them trust more in you than any other leader. So how do you all advise business leaders on communication and most particularly communication on some of the trickier issues that are out there today, because, you know, the politics in America are, are, are so divisive today that if, if any leader sort of carries his or her political beliefs on their, on their shoulder, they're likely to sort of turn off 50% of the people who work for them, uh, given the numbers in the last election. So as you all work with business leaders and saying to them that their voice is so important and their leadership is so important, at the same time, how do you also advise them to stay away from that third rail of displaying or talking about their own political beliefs? Yeah. The being uh, pro-human is different from having a political view. We, we do advise our clients to try and keep 
to be a respite from political rancor and to really uh, rely as much as they can on living their values and examining that. Now, sometimes that will mean there are organizations we've worked with who didn't think that they would be willing to stand up and be heard on an issue. And after finding their voice, they realize that they need to take new actions. And so, but you don't want to go in and just be responding as best you can, just like in the topic of the issue management, to be a trusted leader now means to understand where is the place you really want to lead. You can't lead everywhere. And where are the places that you're, you, you will be an active supporter and where are you going to let it pass you by? And spending time, you know, being a, uh, figuring out the path to be a trusted leader through succession planning is something that increasingly our clients are asking us to help them think through. So as you think about that, talk for a moment about the, the you all just did a big campaign that you actually won an award from PR Week on where you worked with Dove on their, on their pledge for paternity leave. The, talk for a moment, Russell, about how you all came up with that and why that was so impactful as it relates to both promoting the Dove brand, but then also acting in an area that was so important from a, from a social standpoint. Yeah, so I mean, Unilever is one of the most progressive companies in thinking about that combination of profit and purpose. And we've been working with uh, the Dove brand from the inception of the real beauty concept, right? So we were at the table helping to define that concept and how it came to life. In this instance, it's the uh, you know, uh, Dove Men Care product. And when we were talking to them about, like, well, what, what's their enemy? What can they stand up for? What are they going to stand to be a voice for? Who can they be a voice for? And ultimately, we gained a lot of energy around this idea of the new parent and father's Given the, the change in the, in, the, in the family construct and the need for parents to be able to tag team in different ways, that paternity leave was something that a lot of people didn't have access to in the ways that you might assume. And first, what, what Unilever always does, and we do with them, is say, okay, are you standing for the brand and for this issue in the way you should? They, they then made changes in how they were approaching their own paternity leave, and then they became a real advocate not just an advocate in marketing, but really advancing a, you know, almost like a social justice and making sure that this opportunity was something available in multiple states. So we ended up doing sort of grassroots and public affairs work with them in multiple markets to uh, change what those policies were and also get companies to reconsider. And then that's evolved from there. Right. So then they, they look at the different roles of fathers today for role models for black and brown Americans. And, you know, the 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 Father's Day not experienced by those who are incarcerated. So give it gave them a deeply authentic way to stand up, to be heard and to represent a voice that otherwise wouldn't have been able to push a, an important topic like that forward. So, so as you really think about that. Yeah, uh, you guys won a great award for it. 
as you think about where we go from here and the the, the great reopening, if you will, I, I watched a speech you gave back in 2011 where you asked to project forward 10 years and give a sense of where the world would be in 2021. And you said, I can't look really further than six months ahead, so I'll give it a stab. And one of the things you interestingly said, and, and I don't think you had a pandemic in your thinking at that time, but you said that there's going to be a melding of Facebook and FaceTime. And that people are going to want to be doing Facebook at one moment, but then also FaceTiming and interacting with other people and that experience has got to be at the core of it. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. And right now, as we come back out of all this, that was a very um, prescient thing to have said, Russell. Um, But talk for a moment as we get back out of this Zoom world and start to engage with customers and with our employees again and and, and engaging in the old world. How is that going to change from a communication and from a PR standpoint? standpoint. Yeah, well, look, first, our research, our most research, recent research is showing that America is still in a state of trauma. And as much as we want to believe that because the vaccines are rolling out and because there's a, a sense of enthusiasm, the new season, as you said from the start, that it's springtime and like we want to be positive, that we have to recognize that two thirds of Americans are still in pandemic mode. And so there, there is an undercurrent of optimism. We've seen it with the consumer confidence and it's hit its, its peak since the beginning of the pandemic, but still there's a pandemic uh, mode that people are, are, are in. So I think we need to look at, you know, their willingness to go back to certain workplaces, to travel. And most of those things, I was surprised they were pushed further off into this year than I would have suspected. Now, Things can change, things are fluid, but we need to recognize that. And so nonetheless, there are people who are trusting in the vaccine, who are trusting in science, and who are going to be more willing to take action. And so one of the things that we're encouraging our clients to do, so for instance, I was talking with uh, a group, we do a lot of work for the uh, Hawaii tourism, is how do you get to those people? How do you get to the people that trust in the science, the people who trust in the vaccine, and who believe in the, uh, the, the brand of Hawaii, the, that mix of the, the, what they can experience there, but also the culture, the Hawaiian culture, and being a participant in its revitalization of the islands and be a positive part of it. And so I do think there are ways that business can accelerate a successful return. I think some of that's about encouraging vaccination, not requiring it, but encouraging and rewarding it. There's some fun stuff that uh, Chris... Krispy Kreme did around that, giving everyone a donut who's willing to get vaccinated. And it's really building that sense of trust and making sure that people know that they are going to be safe on the way back in. I think we will probably find ourselves, as I understand it's been in China and other markets, a then a, a burst and a boost. And, uh, you know, the sex, drugs, rock and roll and fleeing back into uh, experiences that people have been missing for so long. I think it'll be an interesting moment for, you mentioned the Trojan brand. I think that they'll, they'll have a fun, uh, fun moment when people actually allowed to be with one another and uh, go back to a more normal life. So I think there's a going to be a little delayed response. So people are still in pandemic mode, the trust builds. And then I think whether it's the experiential kind of work that we do or clients like the Hilton's and Hawaii Tourism and United of the World, they're going to they're going to see a, a steep incline. So as the CEO of a firm that's based in New York, you've a had 
your workforce at home and you're in a very sort of uh, one of the things that I heard you say was that if you want to come to Edelman and work on a team, you better be ready for constant change because you're constantly trying to revitalize brands, be forward thinking, what have you. And so you're you're one of the most creative types of companies that exist and you've been remote for a year. A, how's the creativity level kind of maintained itself, if you will, inside of Edelman, working for clients in a remote fashion? And then second of all, your thoughts as it relates to bringing your team specifically back to the office in Manhattan. Yeah, well, I've been amazed at the creativity that our team's able to marshal remotely. I mean, I came in really concerned and skeptical that we'd be able to do the kind of strength of work that we do in person. The team has been absolutely phenomenal in steeping themselves in what's changing, what the tenor of conversation is, and finding ways to then get steeped in the topic and make sure if it's, you know, we've been doing some work lately that's um, around injustice, environmental injustice, that inner cities versus suburbs and how do you address some of those problems and people just get so deep into it and find a way to be ingenious but still I do think that when we fundamentally believe that you get better ideas when people are bumping into each other and you have that ability to bounce the ideas around and to massage them together so as we're thinking about the office whether it's you know where we've got 14 offices in the U.S. When and, and I think one of the beauties of this is when everyone's nowhere, you're able to collaborate across in a way that you might not have done before. And so everyone knows each other in different ways and different contexts, which is fantastic. But we'll need those touchdown meetings. We'll need those places where people can gather less for individual work, but more for inspiration, more for ideas, more for learning. And so that's what we're thinking through right now is to make sure that that's the sorts of energy you get from the office without losing the power of being able to collaborate across expertise in different markets. And so from a timing standpoint on when you think you'll have your teams back in your 14 offices in the United States, what's your your thought about that? Yeah, look, we've throughout this, we've looked at guidance from uh, local health authorities. So we didn't make an, an edict across the firm. So for instance, in New York, Chicago, D.C., we are accessible and available. It's not open per se, but we have some of our employees who really need to escape to be able to uh, focus. And as long as they are following the health guidelines and doing all the things necessary for social distancing, we've kept those doors open, except when the health authorities are advising us not to. So we've really been following that both in kind of shutting down and then being in this hybrid state. So I suspect we'll follow that. My guess is that it's probably going to be September time where we're really going to see more of the population return, feeling confident and feeling comfortable that they can safely be in the office, though I suspect they're not going to be in the office in the same way that they were before and with the same frequency. And we're going through, we just finished a whole bunch of polling of our employees and doing sets of, of workshops to make sure we really understand the experience of the future that is going to be most productive for them and for our clients. And as you, if you will, are, are advising CEOs, and when I say CEO here, this could be a CEO of an entire company, it could be a CEO of a group, it could be a CEO of a team. But as you're advising people who are leaders 
on how to communicate as we get back to it. You mentioned be empathetic, um, understand that many people are still in crisis mode from this. Give a give a cheat sheet, if you will, as it relates to a leader trying to get back to the normal and wanting to sort of get back on track and at the same time being understanding about really what's going to evolve over the next six months. Yep. You know, we've talked through the you know the COVID era about first of all as a leader, what do you want to be known for doing in the time of COVID? To make sure you're almost doing that future forward planning and making sure that you understand this is the lore that will be created around your action or lack of action during this moment in time. And part of that is tone and part of it is really listening. So CEOs are the chief empathy officer. And just because vaccines are rolling out, people are not ready to return back. And you have to keep a you know an ear to the ground to understand where your employees are not just through surveys, but really to listen to them. So chief empathy officer remains paramount. The next part of it is really making sure that your people can see themselves in you as a leader and that you're modeling the behavior, not just talking about the behaviors that you expect. And the last part is really being, you know, the source of energy. And you have to be that optimist and show people that post-COVID, we're going to be what kind of company. With any disruption comes an opportunity if you look hard enough. Of course, there are companies that haven't made it through this, that didn't have the cash, and that's a totally different story. But how are you coming with an equal part of optimism, realism of now, and optimism for tomorrow? So that's really the path that we see in knowing where you want to lead because the societal issues and the expectations are high, and that should that should be imbued across those three areas. And as you think, Russell, about the really forward-thinking companies that you all work with, from both a ad strategy and also from a communication strategy. Don't need to mention them by name, but where are they focused today as it relates to that combination of the, the, the societal issues that we're dealing with, the positioning of their brands, if you will, and also what their companies stand for? Because all of these issues, I think what I've heard you say today during this webcast is no one of them, you could have the best ad campaign possible for a given product, but if you don't stand for something or not thinking about the societal issues, you aren't going to be able to go sell that actual product. And it, and it sounds like you you literally every if you want to be successful in the paradigm of the future, you need to be able to focus on those three different fronts simultaneously. Am I, am I hearing you correct? Yeah. You know, if one of the things we talk about is that trust is sort of the foundational currency now for the stakeholder capitalism era. And if you start with that thesis and understanding that if your trust ebbs, you know, we've seen it in the multiples that companies have. We've seen it in their market cap. We've seen it in the willingness for employees to stay and be an advocate. We've seen it in sales and around growth. And so these pieces that we've been talking about really come together. And our most progressive clients today have digested that. And so they're no longer grappling. They've built some muscle memory. And now they're really looking at what is both the concrete action and the creativity that we can infuse together around those kinds of changes that kind of trust drives transformation. And of course you have to do your, uh, your ability and dependability are still foundational for, for driving that trust, but purpose and integrity are of equal importance. 
Well, Russell, WD has worked with Edelman for many years, and the work we've done together has been hugely valuable to us. And so I, I thank you and your team for all the work we have done together. And I thank you personally for joining me today on the Walker webcast. It's been a fantastic discussion and really insightful on where companies need to be at this time. And it's a very, it's a very, very important time. I mean, I think everyone always says, you know, we hear in elections, this election is the most important election ever. And that's not, you know, they're all important. But this time seems to be somewhat unique and it's clearly uncharted territories. There's nothing normal about all this. And so getting your input in these uh, in these transitional times is super, super helpful and, and very in, in, insightful. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Will. I really, really appreciate the forum. And look, uh, succeeding tomorrow is going to demand trust from leaders. So being able to impart some of this wisdom and our learnings from our clients is uh, is part of our our pleasure, but also our duty. Well, terrific. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, We'll be back next week with the CEO of Booz Allen Hamilton to talk about cybersecurity, about exploration of space, uh, the U.S. Space Command, and a bunch of other things that Booz Allen is focused on. So have a great week. Thanks everyone for joining us. And Russell, thank you again for taking the time. 